This is Ozarks at Large for Thursday, November 3rd, 2022 on your public radio station, KUAF 91.3. I'm Kyle Kellams. Early voting is underway in all three states within our broadcast area now. Oklahoma began early voting yesterday. Also underway, the 75th annual Ozark Folk Festival all around Eureka Springs. Later this hour, Timothy Dennis gives us some highlights of that weekend, as well as other live music opportunities throughout the area. We'll start today by building bridges. Actually, we're going to talk about the first steps of building bridges. This fall, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers awarded the University of Arkansas $500,000 to begin design of rapidly constructible bridges. The goal is to develop creative solutions for the design and construction of temporary bridges that can go from storage to fully operational in just a few hours. Cameron Murray, an assistant professor in the Civil Engineering Department at the U of A, and Gary Prince, an associate professor of Civil Engineering at the U of A, are the principal investigators. They say they're in the earliest stages of the process. Our goal at the moment is just to come with, up with a variety of designs um, and try to not constrain ourselves by the material type. Yeah, fu- functionality is the is the prime importance here. So getting the objective is to get vehicles and personnel across a gap. And whether that requires very specialized, lightweight uh, connections that are machined from titanium or whether it's carbon fiber rods that are used in a very specific orientation to get the strength we need in certain spots, uh, I think we have free reign to come up with uh, these sorts of, uh, of concepts. Before you can do it physically... Is it something that happens on a computer screen, theoretically? Yes, we do. Uh, in in the in the project scope is a lot of uh, what we call finite element modeling, which is basically simulating the loads and forces that we have in real life uh, in computers, so we can understand what are the demands or the the forces that are going into the different elements of the bridge, and then uh, come up with more efficient ways to design design them. So there's there's this. This isn't a technical term, I guess. There's the stretching it out. There's the covering the gap. But then there's also the folding. And you got to think about that, too, right? That's right. I mean, what sort of principles can you use to figure out folding? This is probably something Gary can answer better because Gary's very into uh, unusual structures. So we're hoping to use some concepts of, like, origami structures, which are folding structures, tensegrity structures, which are composed of different tension and compression elements that are only stable in one position, and also compliant mechanisms, which are things like the clip on your backpack is an example of a compliant mechanism. It's something that doesn't have moving parts, uh, but that becomes stable in a certain configuration. Yeah, we... We plan on incorporating things from other fields of engineering that are atypical in, let's say, the civil engineering infrastructure world. So the the, the challenge we have is a, is more of a complex one. It's not a it's not a bridge that you would erect with a crane. It's a bridge that you would deploy with a small group of people through wild mechanical means. And so uh, what uh, Dr. Murray is talking about there with relation to like a compliant mechanism, you can get complex movements in parts that are just one solid piece. Uh, and, and it's through deformation of the piece. So, like, uh, think about, yeah, like uh, he said, the, the little clip on your backpack. It's, it's one piece. It just bends and then locks into place. So you can have all sorts of these compliant mechanisms that just deform, that give you the complex movement you need, but that are, in a, in a way, very simple so that it, you don't have to, like, put a pin and, and connect something. It's already there, but it just moves in a very specific way. So we're going to investigate these sorts of structures and connections to achieve the desired um, outcome we, we have, which is a bridge that can fold up in a very small container and then unpack itself and, to, and uh, carry very, very heavy loads. What would be a very small container? I just Something that could fit on the back of a truck. Wow. Okay, anyone who's put up a tent when they're going camping. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good analogy to oh. what we're thinking of. <laughs> or an umbrella. Or an, okay, all right. Uh, and, and simplicity has – you have to have some simplicity here, right, because you want to make it rapid, you want to make it fast, and you want to make it, I guess, as intuitive as possible. That's right. Easy. Yes. And Easy. one of the goals is, you know, we don't want to make a structure that you need engineers and trained construction personnel to build. We want something that, like, frontline soldiers could assemble. And that's part of the connection piece that Gary was talking about. You know, we don't want – components that have to be welded together or that need to be bolted together in very specific ways like we have in our real structures. Well, I shouldn't say real structures. In our civil infrastructure, 
Um, it needs to be things that are very easy to assemble, just following simple instructions. And, and you know, you think about if, if our objective is to some, have something that is rather small in packaging that unfolds in a very, very specific way that locks into a very specific and strong configuration. If you have a bunch of pins, like a traditional, uh, let's say, two holes and a pin through them, there's something called backlash, which there's a slight movement that can occur, right? Because nothing is as precise as we always uh, plan on it being. So there's always some slight movement. And if you have a lot of connected parts, because the packaging has to be so small when it's folded, that you, you get some pretty large tolerances, you know, and if you need your configuration to be pretty stable, you need to reduce that backlash and reduce the, the, the tolerances that you can have in there. And so using these compliant mechanisms is one way to do that. It's just one solid piece. There is no backlash. What about the surface? You got to have something, I mean, is to it... To drive on? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, how do you come up with that? That's Dr. Murray's department. <laughs> yeah, we don't know yet. Okay, <laughs> I love that. The initial plan in our proposal was to investigate different innovative types of concrete materials. You know, most of our bridge decks in the civilian world are made out of concrete. Um, we were trying to think about unfolding or roll out concrete structures. Um, there's something called concrete fabric that's used to line canals and levees and that kind of thing, uh, but not for structural uses. So we're hoping to play with the idea of using these kind of unrolling or unfolding concrete structures to become a part of the bridge. Um, think about like a bed cover on a truck that unrolls. That, that's kind of the analogy that we made in our proposal. We'll see if that's something that ends up being uh, executed as part of our project. Uh, like I said at the beginning, these are all at this point really big picture conceptual ideas and we're going to kind of whittle it down to something that's more realistic. While the goal, too, here is, is something that's uh, fairly straightforward, getting vehicles and people across uh, a gap, we're, we're trying to unencumber ourselves from traditional ways of thinking about how to do that so that we can come up with really unique, innovative solutions that satisfy these really highly constrained, you know, situations that they've given us, like has to fit in, a, you know, such a volume of packaging and needs to be deployed by X number of people and so forth and so on. Like, we ha- kind of have to clear our minds of what traditionally is done for, for doing these things and, and then go into these different weird avenues to come up with, you know, any, anything is possible is our motto. This reminds me of that scene in Apollo 13 where they're trying to figure out how to save the astronauts and they dump the box and this is what they've got up there, what do we do with this? That's right. Here's our constraints. This is what we have. This is the objective. Let's figure it out. I think for some of us, it would be intimidating to think, okay, we've got to think completely differently and we can think about anything. I think you guys enjoy this sort of idea. It's fun to have fewer constraints. You know, you asked about (laughs) materials earlier. And in typical civil engineering structures, you know, material cost is a major concern. The cool thing about a project like this is the only thing that matters is getting across the barrier. So cost of materials is not as important, which really opens up a lot more options for design. Um, The space analogy is kind of a good one. You know, if you build a rocket, it doesn't matter how expensive the materials are because you need the rocket to make it to space. Uh, In this case, it's kind of a similar thing. The military doesn't care as much about the cost of individual uh, components if that's like the only component that will work for the the way that our structure goes together. And and to to carry over onto your space analogy there, look at satellites. Satellites are very similar, right? They have to be packaged in a very small container, and they get deployed – and they have to worry about folding and all these moving parts, and they need to worry about simplicity because you can't go up there and fix it once it's, you know, once it's in space. So, I mean, a lot of similarities between, you know, having to deploy a structure like, uh, like ours on Earth that, you know, satellites deal with. What's the working situation like? Are you at a computer screen? Is it quiet? Are you in the same room? Do you have a team? I'm just curious. Yeah, we got a team. Yeah, yeah we, we have a graduate student working on this project now, and our team will probably grow uh, once the you know once we get closer to a, a working prototype. Um, but for now, we've told the graduate student just to be creative and uh, not be limited by anything that he's you know he's been trained to think about a lot of limitations as an engineer. We have to train him to forget about all that so that he can come up with just off the wall stuff, and then we can work our way towards a really innovative solution. Yeah. Think about the goal and then look into uh, other avenues of whether it's art or, or science or engineering on how other people have tackled you know, a problem that somewhat addresses what our goal is. 
My conversation with Gary Prince and Cameron Murray from the Grady E. Harville Civil Engineering Research and Education Center at the University of Arkansas took place at the Carver Center for Public Radio late last month. The Arkansas Department of Agriculture released a new mobile app called Arkansas FireSmart for farmers and forest landowners to check intentional burning conditions and report prescribed burns. Prescribed fire used by farmers to clear crop debris and pests on fields after harvest in preparation for the next growing season. Forest property owners and managers conduct prescribed burns to clear undergrowth and timber debris to improve woodland ecosystems and reduce wildfire risk. Robert Murphy, Director of Emergency Services for the Arkansas Department of Agriculture, manages all fire programs for the Arkansas Forestry Division. He says Arkansas Fire Smart will help improve compliance with state smoke management guidelines developed to protect Arkansas air quality. The idea for the app came as an idea to try to make it easier for for practitioners to be able to report their burns and and have calculations done for for them on their their carbon uh, output from a fire to make sure that they're staying within those smoke management guidelines and and following them as, as closely as can be. Uh, and also serve as a, a tool for us to be able to get more data and, and learn more about how many burns are happening and, and where they're happening. The Arkansas State Forestry Division has responded to hundreds of wildfires this summer and this autumn, deploying regional contracts, single-engine air tankers, and firefighters based across 60 locations covering all 75 counties in Arkansas. With recent rains, more farmers and timberland owners expected to resume burning. Murphy says the Arkansas FireSmart app will help dispatch response teams to better sort out wildfires from intentional burns. Yeah, yeah. So it'll help us. Um, you know, when we have detection flights up, uh, it, it's always good for us to know where a, a, a prescribed burn is, so that uh, we don't we don't waste time and money and and resources uh, responding to a, a, a prescribed burn. The free online app, which doesn't require download, can be accessed at Arc. Firesmart.com. Voluntary smoke management guidelines can be found at agriculture.arkansas.gov. The wildfire risk in Arkansas declined in late October, causing most fire bans to be lifted in all but a dozen Arkansas counties. Moderate to extreme drought conditions, however, continue to persist across Arkansas, according to the National Drought Monitor. Anthropologist Genevieve von Petzinger studies ancient symbols, like handprints she saw covering a cave wall in Spain. You know, it almost brought tears to my eyes. There was one hand they think is like that of a four-year-old, so tiny. And somebody had to lift them up. It's on the ceiling. Ideas about leaving a mark. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. TED Radio Hour, Sunday afternoon at 1 on 91.3 KUAF. In about 10 minutes on this Thursday, Ozarks at Large, Timothy Dennis will give us ideas about how to enjoy live music over the next seven days. But right now, Timothy Dennis is with me in the Harold and Blanchcock studio. Kyle, last night we had a live broadcast. Right. So we're going to talk about live music coming up, but let's spend just a couple of minutes talking about live music that happened last night. So last night we broadcast about an hour and a half, a little bit more than that, of live music from Star Theater, Walton Arts Center. First time we've broadcast live from Star Theater. As far as any of us are aware, anyway. Uh, It was part of the Reflections Tertulia, which is something that's been, what, three, maybe even four years in the making? Exactly. Uh you know, our general manager, Lee Wood, uh, hosted the show from the Walton Arts Center. Uh, Leah Uribe, the host of Sound Perimeter, she was the master of ceremonies from the stage and yes. kind of the brainchild behind this whole yes. thing. Yes. Uh, and Pepe Rivero, his arrangements of Vivaldi's uh, Four Seasons, they were just mind-blowing. Yeah, the Four Seasons of Latin Jazz is how it was built. Yeah, and I mean, as someone who... You know, when I was in middle and high school, I was in, you know, symphonic band. I knew, you know, the Four Seasons, but I had never imagined them in the way he did. You know, I listened last night. I wasn't there, but I listened. And um, it was just spectacular. Yeah. And, I mean, that's the way I want to hear the Four Seasons from now on, just because it left such a mark on me. Those arrangements were just so incredible it made me move a lot yeah well you were here at the station correct engineering from here i was at home listening on the radio i'd love to know what it looked like yeah i've seen a few pictures lee uribe posted some pictures this morning on facebook and it it looks pretty fun 
Now, uh, Leah, obviously busy this week, so we don't mm-hmm. have a sound perimeter. I think we'll have a new one next week right. from her after she catches her breath. <laughs> but we're going to be able to hear some of the music on Ozarks at Large over the next couple of weeks, right, right? Right, We did record the whole thing, so we'll have at least some excerpts sometime in the near future. All right. I love having live music on the radio. I do, too. I hope we get to do more of that in the future. All right. Uh, so just a couple of minutes, about 10 minutes from now, we'll mm-hmm. talk about more live music. All right. Sounds good. Time now for today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. I'm Paul Gatling. Last week, the U.S. Department of Commerce released a GDP figure that showed a rebound in economic growth during the late summer and early fall. Does this mean we are out of a recession? Does this mean we will avoid a recession? Mervyn Jebaraj is an economist at the University of Arkansas and director of the Center for Business and Economic Research. He joins us today to discuss... That conversation and other headlines are after the break on this edition of the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Support for the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report is provided by the Arkansas State Chamber of Commerce and Associated Industries of Arkansas. The Chamber's mission is to promote a pro-business, free enterprise agenda and prevent legislation, regulation, and rules that hinder business. ArkansasStateChamber.com Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield For more than 70 years, Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield has used its knowledge and compassion to create health care solutions for individuals and businesses. More information at ArkansasBlueCross.com First Security is proud to be only in Arkansas. They offer smart solutions for personal and business banking, plus convenient services and community investment. First Security. Member FDIC. Equal housing lender. According to the Commerce Department, the United States economy grew at a better-than-expected 2.6% annual rate from July through September, That snapped two straight quarters of economic contraction, despite soaring inflation and interest rates. University of Arkansas economist Mervyn Jebaraj shared his analysis of the latest quarterly report in a recent interview with Roby Brock. Well, certainly if you had bet that there was a recession going on in the United States, you've lost that bet at this point. Uh, But I think the truth of the matter is that we were not in a recession, um, at least up till the third quarter of uh, 2022. So even though the first two quarters uh, showed a negative reading on GDP, they were due to very specific factors related to international trade, which dragged the overall uh, GDP figure negative. Uh, this quarter, the higher positive rate was also because of international trade. It just went the opposite direction. So net exports were higher uh, in the third quarter data that we got for net exports were lower in the first and second quarters. So uh, within the domestic economy, it's essentially been growing at a very lower rate. Um, so while it's not a recession, it's not booming like the economy was last year either. So uh, we have sort of a low growth rate in the U.S. economy as far as domestic consumers are concerned. Um, consumer spending is still positive, but is much lower rates than it was last year. And between the second quarter and the third quarter, consumer spending, the overall rate of increase in consumer spending declined, um, which depending on how you look at it, the Federal Reserve, for example, might look at that as evidence of saying um, that their rate increase is working and that consumers are pulling back and that maybe that will have an effect on inflation going forward. So um, to the question of, you know, was there a recession in 2022 so far? The answer is no. Unlikely that we will enter a recession in 2022. But I think there's still, given that the domestic economy is growing at such a slow rate, uh, there's still a very high likelihood that we will have a recession in 2023, especially given that the Federal Reserve is going to continue with its rate increases. They're very likely to raise rates by 0.75% at their upcoming meeting um, this week. Um, It's likely that they will raise by at least 0.5 or more at the following meetings as well. And so, Given how much rate increases we've seen so far, both from the Federal Reserve here in the United States and the feedback loop that we're going to get from rate increases at central banks across the world, uh, I think it's very likely that in the first quarter and second quarter of 2023, we are going to see something that resembles a contraction. How deep it is, how long it is, is still uh, yet to be determined. And that is 
somewhat dependent on the path that the Federal Reserve may take at that point and how inflation looks. But let's talk about this. We can control what we can control domestically. So the feds can raise these interest rates. There's not a lot of other, these are blunt tools that they have to work with to deal with uh, what's happening in this recession or these recessionary pressures are worldwide. Um, obviously, our economy is big and has a ripple effect around the world. But if we are to do some of these things, are we still dependent upon China to do something to spark their economy, Europe to do something to help with its recessionary pressures that it's saying those are things outside of our control. And I'm just asking you as an economist, are we dependent on them being somewhat aggressive and working in lockstep with U.S. policy on this? Right. I mean, so I think as far as what the Federal Reserve can control, which is the rate increases that they have committed to at this point, um, I think there are a lot of people, myself included, that would argue that they should maybe slow down their rate hikes. We're not arguing that they necessarily stop their rate hikes. Inflation is still a concern in the U.S. economy. But maybe there are some signs that inflation might abate in the near future. So as far as the domestic economy is concerned, you know, the big drivers of inflation, at least the ones that people care about, are gas prices, rents, or you know, home prices, or how much people are paying in rent. And food prices, and some of those, you know, especially the rents nationally have gone down in the past couple of months. There's a lag between when that shows up in the official inflation rate. It usually takes five to six months to show up. So rents are going down today. They won't show up in the official inflation measures for a while longer. But we can argue that, you know, we may not need this level of rate increase if we see that coming in the future. The other piece of the food prices have also, you know, not declined significantly, but they're not increasing at the same pace that they were. Some food price measures have gone down some uh, from their highs this summer. And then gas prices are lower today than they were earlier this summer. They're a little bit higher this month than they were last month. Uh, and, you know, sort of the course of the war um, between Russia and Ukraine and whether or not the European Union uh, enforces a ban on Russian oil uh, later this year will sort of determine what happens with oil and gas prices. But as far as what the Federal Reserve can do, I think there is some evidence, and at least in my opinion and some others, that they could um, continue raising rates, but at a lower rate that maybe we don't need to raise by 0.75 each time they meet, that maybe a 0.5 or something is more appropriate given where we are uh, seeing an overall economic slowdown in terms of output anyway at this point. And that is University of Arkansas economist Mervyn Jebaraj with some analysis of the latest GDP numbers. That interview with Roby Brock is online, and you can find it at nwabusinessjournal.com. ArcBest is shipping and managing the shipment of more stuff and getting paid more to do both. The Fort Smith-based company reported third-quarter earnings of $88.8 million on Tuesday, up nearly 40% compared with the same quarter in 2021. Revenue in the quarter was up 34% to $1.35 billion. The company's revenue through the first three quarters was $4.08 billion, and that's up 46% compared with the same period in 2021. Sports wagering in Arkansas set a monthly record in September with bets totaling $21.18 million. Sports wagers may be placed at the state's three casinos or through their mobile applications. The first legal sports wager in Arkansas was placed in July 2019, and since then the state has collected about $3.2 million as a result. And the Wisconsin-based fast casual restaurant chain Culver's is a step closer to opening its second Arkansas location, both in Benton County. A Culver's franchisee recently completed a $1.2 million land purchase for a 1.7-acre lot on Walton Boulevard in Bentonville. It's part of a commercial redevelopment totaling about nine acres being led by real estate firm Collier's Arkansas. It's called Redbud Place. Culver's is known for its frozen custard and butter burgers, and it opened its first Arkansas store on West New Hope Road in Rogers this summer. For more news, visit us online at nwabusinessjournal.com, where you can follow our reporting each and every day. I'm Paul Gatling, and that's the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Until next time, thanks for listening.
And this is Ozarks at Large. Let's talk about live music. Let's talk about live music with Timothy Dennis. Hey, Kyle. Hello, Timothy. Let's start with today, actually. Today. Today. I know we're going to miss some of the things that are happening today and tonight, but I mention it because today is the start of the 75th original Ozark Folk Festival in Eureka Springs. And I believe... They at least can claim that they are the longest continuous-running folk festival in the country. I Something like that. Something like that. Yeah. I can't confirm or right. disconfirm that, but it's certainly one of the oldest ones yes. I know about. There's free music every day during the day starting at 11 a.m. in the basement of the city auditorium. Tomorrow, they're going to feature Jesse Dean, the band Front Porch, and Shannon Worst. Oh. Saturday daytime, they're featuring Dandelion Heart. Brian Martin, and Ozark Mountain Rhombus. Nice. So there are also after parties taking place at Chelsea's. Tomorrow night, they'll feature the Danny Spain Gang. Mm -hmm. Saturday night, they are going to feature Chucky Wags and the Company of Rags, Shiloh Molina and the Honky Tonk Flame, and Gary Lawrence. Wow. Main stage shows during the Folk Festival. Actually, tonight is the Barefoot Ball in the basement of the auditorium featuring Mm -hmm. Willie Carlisle and Chucky Wags. That starts at 7.30, so if you're listening this evening, you could hurry and still get there for at least the second well, half Well, I was going to say to see it before it's right. over. Uh, admission for that is $15. Tomorrow night, main stage is going to feature Rachel Ammons and the band Shiny Ribs. Oh, yeah. we love Rachel. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that starts at 7.30. Uh, tickets are $30. That's tomorrow evening. Then Saturday evening, Hot Club of Cowtown and Pokey Lafarge. Yeah, they've got a really good lineup this year. That is a good lineup. That Pokey Lafarge set, uh, tickets are $39. That gets underway at 7.30 p.m. Saturday evening. And that's that's all in Eureka Springs. And that's in the odd. Yes. Yes, correct. Okay, so that's enough about the Folk Festival. On to our regularly scheduled music (laughs) programming throughout the area. So let's start with tomorrow night. George's Majestic Lounge in Fayetteville, for their happy hour set, is going to have the Bel Airs on stage. All right. What kind of fool do you think I am? What kind of fool do you think I am? You think you're going to go on seeing him? Darling, after we met. Band that's been around for a few years from Missouri, kind of a rock and roll band. A few years, yes. Cover for that's $8. Gets underway at 6 o'clock tomorrow night again at George's in Fayetteville. The late show at George's tomorrow night is going to have the band Ozark Riviera. Cover for that's $10. Gets underway at 9.30 tomorrow night again at George's in Fayetteville. Also happening tomorrow night in Fayetteville, something we've covered on the show earlier this week, a tribute to Toots Thielman. Yes, yes. Uh, it'll be at Roots HQ, and it's going to be something else. Tickets for that start at $30. Gets underway at 7 o'clock tomorrow night. Again, that's at the Roots HQ in downtown Fayetteville. Also happening in Fayetteville, there's going to be kind of a hard rock and metal show at the DIY venue, The Hop Out. They're featuring the band's Eagle Claw Rickshaw, Billy's Burger Patrol, and Stash Hag. They're asking for a five to ten dollar donation at the door. That'll get underway at seven o'clock tomorrow night. Again, at the Hop Out DIY space in Fayetteville. If you need directions for that, you can find them on Instagram. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Another show in Fayetteville, another heavy rock and metal show, is taking place at Nomad's Trailside tomorrow night, featuring Will Berry, Oak Street, and the Sirens of Titan. It's underway at 8 o'clock tomorrow night, again at Nomad's Trailside in Fayetteville. A different kind of show happening at Mojo's Pints and Pies in Fayetteville tomorrow night. The Damn Neighbors will be in the house. Ah, and is this the one? The OG one, the one on Garland Garland. If you're unfamiliar with the Damn Neighbors, they're a folk bluegrass band. Yeah, but they can rev it up. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They rev it up. That show gets underway at 7 o'clock tomorrow night, again at Mojo's on Garland Avenue in Fayetteville. Okay, getting up to Springdale tomorrow night. Black Apple Tap Room on Emma is going to have Route 358 in the house. I woke up on the kitchen table, and as soon as I 
And then I'll pick up that bop And I'll wallow in all my sorrow They are celebrating a release party for actually their final EP that they're going to release, uh, titled A Part of Moving On. They're going to have CDs at the show and everything as well. But They're final. I know. Okay. That set gets underway at 6 o'clock tomorrow night, again at Black Apple in Springdale. Tomorrow night, okay. And happening down at the Majestic in Fort Smith tomorrow night, they're going to welcome back contemporary country artist Tanner Ussery. Cover for that is $18 in advance, $22 at the door. That gets underway at 9.30 tomorrow night at Majestic in Fort Smith. Okay, jumping ahead to Saturday night. Uh, JJ's Live in Fayetteville is going to have another contemporary pop country show featuring Paul Swindell. She's got the bar and the palm of her hand. And she's a 90s country fan like I am. Hey, I got a Chevy. She can flip a quarter. I'd drive her anywhere from here to California when this song is Tickets are $40 in advance. They go up to $45 at the door. That'll get underway at 7.30 Saturday, again at JJ's Live in Fayetteville. Smoke and Barrel in Fayetteville Saturday night is going to welcome back the Joplin area band Me Like Bees. Oh, we like Me Like Bees. I love Me Like yeah. Bees. We've had them in here before. At least once, yeah. Yeah. Cover for that show is $10. That'll get underway at around 9 o'clock Saturday night, again at Smoke and Barrel Tavern in Fayetteville. Happening kind of throughout the day in Springdale Saturday, they're going to have a Dia de los Muertos celebration featuring several performances, including a couple of mariachi bands, some ballets. Should be a really good time. Right. That gets underway at about noon Saturday, again at Shiloh Square in downtown Springdale. Jumping ahead to Sunday Actually, Fayetteville Public Library is going to host another Sona Beyond performance. This time they are featuring a bilingual performance of Peter and the Wolf. Oh, yes. Or Pedro E. El Lobo. Yes. Narration will be by Al Lopez and Sona board member Jack Cleghorn. That gets underway at 3 o'clock Sunday afternoon at Fayetteville Public Library. I'm just going to stop. I had a chance to talk with Al uh, Sunday night at the reception that the mm. Carver Center, he was here, uh, the reception for Tertulia. In the reflections. Yeah. What a wonderful person oh, he is. absolutely. And just, great community builder, uh, great personality. I just love him so much. We need more Al Lopez's in our I life. agree with that. Jumping ahead, more music happening next week. Uh, jumping ahead to Wednesday, George is in Fayetteville is going to welcome Brother in the Haze to their stage. Uh, an Americana band okay. uh, kind of from... Texas, Tennessee. Well, I keep all my money in a coffee cup, but when I get paid, it's never enough. I'm a long way off from heaven, but things are looking up when I cross that state line. They're joined on that bill by Bo Jennings and the Tigers, a band from Oklahoma. Okay. Tickets are $10. That gets underway at 8 o'clock Wednesday at George's in Fayetteville. And then finally, next Thursday night. A week six, from tonight. A week from tonight. Uh, 612 Coffee House in Fayetteville is going to have Circle of Thirds on stage. Ah. They've been one of our lunch hour guests. Exa- uh, not our lunch hour. We've had them in the studio I this can't year. keep. We have so much music going I on know, at this right? station that I can't keep straight. What year is this? I don't know. That show at 612 Coffee House next Thursday gets underway at 6 o'clock. Again, that's out in West Fayetteville. Right. Circle of Thirds has been on Ozarks at Large. Who am I thinking of that was lunch hour? Honey Collective. That's it. <laughs> Which we've also had in our studio well, before. Well, okay. I can't keep it straight. I can't. That's why we have you. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Thank you, Timothy. Thank you. Support for KUAF comes from the Museum of Native American History in Bentonville. The museum is hosting a Dia de los Muertos festival with free admission November 5th from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. This celebration of life features food, music, and more. Information at M-O-N-A-H dot org. This is Ozarks at Large. Tomorrow night, Crystal Bridges Museum of American Arts 2022 Van Cliburn series concludes with a performance from Terrence Wilson. Wilson is a graduate of the Juilliard School, a recipient of an Avery Fisher career grant, and he was nominated for a Grammy in 2011. Yesterday, I reached him by phone and asked him how he decides what he'll play at a recital like the one tomorrow night at Crystal Bridges. I try to balance out uh, music that, well, first of all, I have to love it, or I have to be at least intrigued by the music, uh, um, 
intellectually um, or uh, or emotionally or both. And um, if I really feel I have something, you know, that uh, that I have to say about the piece, like I have a, a case for that specific repertoire that hasn't been made yet for us, um, and I feel like it's uh, going to be well received in a particular community, then that's when I say, you know what, I think I'd like to present this particular piece in this particular venue on this particular recital. Now, that's recitals. Uh, I don't always get the choice when it comes to uh, concertos, for example. A lot of times the orchestra has a preset, uh, predetermined uh, repertoire that they'd like me to play. And uh, if it's something that is on my list that I'm able to offer, um, and uh, it doesn't uh, put too much of a strain on my time, because after all, I do have to juggle a lot of other repertoire. And uh, I want to be cautious that I don't overcommit or put too much on my plate. Uh, And uh, if I can manage it, then I'll give it a go. I think I have read that when you were a young, young musician, um, you also played brass, perhaps uh, tuba? Oh, (laughs) wow. You have really done impressive research (laughs) because that is not something that ever showed up in any of my bios. And yes, that is correct. Um, In middle school, I played the trombone and the tuba. And the thing about trombone and tuba is if you're going to another continent to perform, you can take those with you. With a piano, you're going to have to, (laughs) you know, work with (laughs) what's waiting for you. Yes, that's true. That's true. Yes, that that is one of the uh, the downsides, I would say. Uh, But, you know, any good pianist um, has to... uh, have to develop a technique and um, technique is not just you know how efficiently and effectively and accurately you move your fingers about on the keyboard um, although that's that's a good part of it but it also has to do with adaptability um, adaptability is very important uh, in this profession because as you said some pianos are just not as cooperative as others how how long does it maybe take you to when you sit down with a new piano to figure it out? Can you tell within seconds what the personality of the instrument is? Usually, I can. Yes, and um, uh, sometimes it can feel like a battle because if you're playing something, for example, that requires a lot of uh, fast, repetitive notes. Um, then you want a piano that has a light, easy action. Um, and, um, and sometimes, uh, you know, I've had to play such types of pieces on the piano that did not have a light, easy action. And I had to, uh, I had to use technique in order to, um, to accomplish that, but without overexerting and, uh, because that can be very dangerous, you know. There are the perils of, of tendonitis and carpal tunnel syndrome uh, if one <laughs> engages into a war with an uncooperative piano. On the program for Crystal Bridges this weekend, uh, Schubert, Brahms, Stravinsky, and a Polish-Ukrainian composer that I'm not as familiar with, and I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this correctly, Szymanowski? Yes, Szymanowski, very Sh- close. Yes. Szymanowski. All right, what can you tell us about Szymanowski? Well, um, he was sort of uh, in the shadow of uh, more familiar composers like Rachmaninoff and uh, Scriabin. And uh, he's, uh, I think, one of those far underrated composers uh, relegated to uh, relative obscurity. Um, but his music uh, spans a very wide range stylistically. Some of his early works almost sound like something reminiscent of Chopin. Mm. Um, uh, but these uh, etudes over 33 are 
more advanced. Uh, um, they're, they're not very long pieces. Uh, some of them are even under a minute long, but they are full of color in sound, and they're like little, little prisms of, uh, of, of sound and color and, and light in color, if you will. And uh, they're full of character, and they're, some of them are physical, some of them are gravely serious. Um, and as a set, I think they work really well uh, as a complete set. That sounds like something that could be very intellectually attractive to a musician. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, you know, there is also a backstory um, to uh, what inspired me to learn these etudes, if you've got a moment. I do. Well, this goes back to my college years when I was a student at the Juilliard School. Uh, some, oh, should I divulge uh, how many years ago that was? Uh, well, let's just say easily two decades ago. All right. And, um, and uh, I had awakened from sleep, and I was starving. And um, so I walked out over to Hell's Kitchen in New York City, um, and uh, I went into a corner store bodega to get a sandwich or something for lunch. And back in those days, you know, I was, uh, you know, a college student, so I could only imagine that, uh, you know, to someone who didn't know that I wasn't homeless, I might have looked homeless. So I, so I walked into this bodega, and who do I see in this most unlikely of places? My idol, Christian Zimmerman, the great Polish pianist. Seriously? And so immediately, seriously, yes. So immediately I, you know, shot right up and, uh, and almost involuntarily I said, Christian Zimmerman. And um, he shot right up. He was uh, visibly startled. I guess uh, he didn't expect this <laughs> near-homeless-looking uh, young African-American kid in a corner store bodega in Hell's Kitchen to know who he was. But once I explained to him that I was a student at the Juilliard School and uh, that he was one of my uh, idols, and I told him who I was studying with and what repertoire that I was learning and playing at the time. Then he calmed down and he graciously lavished several precious moments with me in this store. And without having heard a single note of my playing, just based on the conversation that we'd had and the repertoire that I had been playing, I guess it gave him an idea of my uh, pianistic uh, abilities and the level uh, my technical proficiency, he said to me, uh, have you ever played the Shimonovsky etudes? And I say, why no, I haven't. He said, I think you should learn them. I think they'd be a good piece for you. Now, that might have just been a kind of, uh, you know, uh, perfunctory utterance uh, on his part. But to me, it was like coming from, you know, uh, from uh, it was like a religious dictate from my idol, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> like from Christian Zimmerman's mouth to my fingers. <laughs> I'm going to eventually learn these pieces. Now it took me, uh, you know, some time to gather up the time and the courage to actually uh, plunge into the depths of these pieces, uh, because after all. Um, if I was going to follow his orders, I wanted to do it, you know, properly and correctly. And um, finally, a couple of years ago, I, uh, I committed myself to learning them. And uh, they've just been a joy to learn and play ever since. Oh, my gosh. And I imagine that you, th on some level, you think about that chance encounter maybe every time uh, you're, you're, you're playing that music. Well, yes. In fact, I have this sort of fantasy <laughs> that, uh, that one day, uh, you know, I will uh, have some avenue to contact him and tell him the story 
Uh, I don't expect him to remember it, but just on the slight chance that he might, um, I would travel to wherever he is in Europe if he had 15 minutes to just hear me play them. Uh, and, uh, well, if not, then uh, maybe someday I can make a commercial recording of them and dedicate the whole set to him. I love that. I can't wait for when you're in a Walmart or a bodega or somewhere and someone, when you least expect it, says, Terrence Wilson! <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose I might uh, have to pass on the tradition of uh, advocating for the music of Karol Szymanowski. Terrence Wilson talked with me yesterday. He'll perform in the Great Hall at Crystal Bridges tomorrow night, beginning at 7. More information at crystalbridges.org. KUAF is supported by Hendricks College, offering engaged learning by linking classrooms to the world and developing career skills throughout its curriculum. Hendricks graduates pursue medical, law, and other advanced degrees, preparing students to lead lives of accomplishment. Hendricks.edu slash connect for more information. This is Ozarks at Large. You may recall last year when Justin Long, Kate Bosworth, and Gia Crovaton were seen around here filming a movie. Turns out the film, House of Darkness, is a reimagining of Bram Stoker's Dracula, written and directed by famed playwright Neil LeBute. This week, we talked with LeBute, Crovaton, and Blake Elder. Blake is the president and CEO and owner of Rock Hill Studios, the coordinating studio for that movie. I asked all of them about making the picture. We're going to hear much of our conversation on Ozarks at Large next week, but we wanted to share some of what each had to say before House of Darkness is screened as part of Filmland Number no. 5 in Little Rock this weekend. We reached Blake by Zoom in his editing suite at Rock Hill Studios and asked him how Rock Hill and the producers coordinated the filming. Yeah, we just kind of worked with the producers where, where we got everything pretty much lined up, and I think he came in you know a week or two before um, just to handle, you know, his directing creative stuff. And, and, you know, with House of Darkness, we were only at one location, which was nice logistically. Um, we shot at, it was, it's called the Drawn Board Castle in Fayetteville. Um, Bruce and Joan are, are the owners and they're just fantastic people. And, and that place is just, if you ever get a chance to tour it, it's really interesting. <laughs> The movie, with just four characters, takes place almost exclusively in the castle-like home south of downtown Fayetteville. Gia Crovaton says it was a memorable experience and her first time in Arkansas. The day after I got my second round of the first shots, I flew to, to Fayetteville. So it was it was very present in my mind because also I had a very young baby, our our baby, and I was worried about leaving her for the first time, you know, um, so those things are very clear in my mind. And it was a super intense, super tight shooting schedule. We filmed all nights. We filmed in a castle. Um, it's, you know, the movie's uh, horror. So there was a, a creepy energy about it. And we pretty much shot in sequence, I would say. There were maybe one or two days that were out. But, uh, you know, as an actor, sometimes you shoot out of sequence. So you kind of have to keep the trajectory, like the emotional trajectory. Like, where was I this day? And is this going to fit in? Am I going to be, you know, as happy as I was when I shot three weeks ago or whatever? But with this movie, we didn't have to do that so much because we pretty much shot in sequence. Writer and director Neil Labute, well known for his plays like In the Company of Men and The Shape of Things, says he's been interested in Bram Stoker's Dracula for a long time, likely influenced by his mother's love of vampires. She used to keep me home and let me watch Dark Shadows, you know, uh, and um, I worked on Van Helsing. I, I adapted the, the novel for the stage. So I, I've had a lot of time spent uh, creatively with, with vampires. And, and I thought this was an interesting way to both work in that world again, but also to go, go in the world that I've spent a lot of time in, which is, is uh, interpersonal relationships between people and men and women in particular, and to dabble in that again, um, but attack it from a, from a slightly different point of view, ultimately. You know, they're, they're, I don't think you could reverse the sexes in the same way and probably have the same film um, where you could, and, you know, and certainly in some cases and certainly some things that I've written, um, there's an inherent um, 
what is what's the word? There's there's a there's a safety, I guess, that that the main character experiences by being a man, uh, a sense of safety anyway, almost to the end of the picture. That that no matter if he's outnumbered or whatever the situation is, walking into a dark house by yourself um, and having drinks given you by somebody you don't really know. All those things he kind of swaggers through, still feeling very much in control of the situation, and so I think that's a. Um, it was fun to take that that guy. Labute says there are plenty of things to like about filming in Fayetteville in the Ozarks, including financial incentives for filmmakers. The dirty, practical, economic side of the business says the easy answer is there was very good tax incentives. <laughs> so you know, you're, the funny thing is a state like Arkansas or or where we live in New York, you know, seems to understand that in a way that that California, what we think of as like the, the home of film and television, don't seem to. You know, they don't offer the same kind of incentives in California. So a lot of films that you would have seen, especially when the studios were based there, are now being made elsewhere in the, in the country. Um, so Arkansas was a very attractive uh, state in terms of, of monies, but also in terms of what we needed, you know, when you're only going to have one of the things, you're only going to have one location to show people you want it to be the best it could be. And that castle was was very unique. Neil LeBute, writer and director of the movie House of Darkness, which was filmed in Fayetteville last year. The film will be screened tomorrow night as part of Filmland 5 in Little Rock, hosted by the Arkansas Cinema Society. We'll hear much more about the film next week on our show. Hey, it's Ari Shapiro. If you spend a lot of time online, you might have noticed how things can blur together and get taken out of context. A post of one photo might overlook the bigger picture. Important details can get glossed over in the name of keeping your attention. On All Things Considered from NPR, we try to do the opposite. We set the scene in every story and explain how we got here. It's called All Things Considered for a reason. Listen every afternoon. All Things Considered every weekday afternoon from 3 to 6 on KUAF. And also, Weekend All Things Considered, every Saturday and Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock, so you can hear it every day of the week. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Dutch Mills. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Timothy Dennis produced today's show inside the Herald and Blanchcock News Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio. Contributors today included Timothy... Paul Gatling and Jacqueline Froelich. Jacqueline provided the report about the FireSmart app. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. He's still performing some afternoons live around 4 o'clock our time on his Facebook and Instagram feeds. Tomorrow, Friday, a brand new edition of Ozarks at Large. We'll have Michael Tilley from Talk Business and Politics reviewing the week's news. And we hear two different sides about issue four, which would... Uh, legalized recreational marijuana in Arkansas. Rick Steves talking about why he is for the decriminalization and legalization of uh, recreational marijuana. We'll also hear from David Couch, an Arkansas resident, why he is perhaps surprisingly against issue four. That and much more on tomorrow's show. If you ever miss an edition of Ozarks at Large, you can go online to ozarksatlarge.com or kuaf.com. You can listen on your schedule when you download or subscribe to the absolutely free podcast of Ozarks at Large. And you can always ask your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large because you'll hear the most recent edition of the show. For Timothy Dennis, I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks so much for listening.